Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Psalm chapter 16. My heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And our New Testament reading is from John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. He is risen. Risen indeed. Praise God. My name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are visiting, as on Easter, there's often many family members who come in from out of town. We welcome you. We're so glad that you are here this morning. For those of you who are watching online, we welcome you and we're glad that you're watching online. And we pray that today will be a very special day. Uh, in the Christian church, which this is, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important event. It is the resurrection that defines Christianity. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians says this, If Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. Everything in Christianity hinges upon Easter. Christ being raised from the dead is what this is all about. Now this Easter, our focus is, um, we're going to focus on what it means to believe that Jesus is risen. We're not just talking about facts, you know, the history of the resurrection. That is important, though. What we want to do today is we want to see how the resurrection makes sense of your life, how the resurrection makes sense of this world, how the resurrection, if you will, is the foundation of our lives. It makes a difference in how we live today. Because of the resurrection, there is assurance that we truly belong to God, that we are accepted by God. Because of the resurrection, we can have freedom from worry. We can have assurance that we will always be with God. And so what we want to do today is we want to see because Jesus Christ is risen, we are to believe in him. We'll get at that through three points. Because Jesus is risen, we are to believe that he is risen from the dead. Because Jesus is risen, we believe that he has been risen to save us from our sins. And because Jesus is risen, 
We believe that he has risen from the dead to give us eternal life. Because he has risen, we are to believe. Before we go further, would you first put, uh, please pray with me? God, we pray because we love you. We pray because we need you. We pray because we ask you to open our hearts that we might receive your word. Please speak. Help us to hear. Help us to see the resurrected Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So the first point is we're to believe that Jesus is risen, but that he is risen from the dead. Now, before we believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, we actually have to first believe that he really died upon the cross. And the cross, if you recall, is a Roman form of execution. And it was a form of execution that was meant to maximize suffering as the person who was hanging upon the cross would die slowly, painfully from asphyxiation. Then also it was a, a death that was to maximize public shame. Often the person who was being crucified would hang naked before the whole community. The Romans had perfected this form of execution. Uh, there was no error in it. There were no survivors in it. When you go to chapter 19 in Gospel of John, so we're in chapter 20 today, but when you go to the prior chapter uh, to make sure that Jesus is dead, it says there that there was a, a Roman soldier and he pierced Jesus in the side. Now, we need to note the details of that account. It says that blood and water flowed out from Jesus' side. These are not references to the sacraments of the Lord's Supper or baptism. What it is, it's, it's a detail. It's what an eyewitness would account. And so here you have a Roman soldier who is an expert in doing this. This is a person who's been doing this perhaps many years. And he knows where to hit and he hits the heart and blood and the fluid of the pericardium flows out. And it's a detail to say Jesus really died. He did not swoon. He really died. And then we come to our text today. Look at chapter 20, our text. But then look at verses 1 through 10. Here we see these details that only eyewitnesses would give of the resurrection. It starts first with Mary Magdalene, and she runs to the tomb, and she sees that the stone has been removed, and then she runs back to Peter and John, John being the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then we see that they have a sprint, and John apparently was on the track team, and he outruns Peter. And this is stuff that you just don't make up unless it were real. We see that Peter, in his customary way, uh, John's afraid to go in, but Peter's not, and he dives into the tomb, and he sees the burial clothes, including the one that covered Jesus' face. And note the detail. It's folded and put off to the side. This would not happen if somehow Jesus was being, you know, grave robbed, which is what, in the Gospel of Matthew, the Jewish leaders said, that's actually what happened. But it would not happen that way if the face cloth is rolled, folded, and put off to the side. What is recorded are details if the eyewitnesses were there. If you were here uh, for the past couple, several weeks, if you will, we've been going through a book called First John, and this is uh, Gospel of John. But First John's a letter that he wrote to one of the churches. And John, when he writes his epistle, in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, you know what, we were the eyewitnesses. 
We are the ones who saw what went on. We are the ones who saw with our eyes. We looked upon, and he says, we even touched this Lord Jesus Christ. As we come back to our text today, there's another key detail that you would never make up. It's that a woman is the first one to discover the empty tomb. But also, it is a woman, as we read for you to go further in chapter 20, it is a woman, Mary Magdalene, that Jesus first appears to. Why this is striking is because in that time, according to the history that we have, there was a historian, his name is Josephus, and he's a Jewish man, not a Christian, but a Jewish man. And in his Jewish uh, antiquities, he writes about how the testimony of a woman was not allowed in court because of her standing. And so if you were to try to prove something in the court, you would not have a woman testify. Now, some other historians had said, well, maybe that's a bit exaggerated. And even if it is, all historians agree that at least it conveyed the sentiment that a woman's testimony would not be your leading testimony, that a woman's testimony is not what you would use in the court to make a case of this nature. If you wanted to make up the story about Jesus being resurrected and you wanted to actually convince people you would have men as the leading witnesses. So why does it read this way? Because it happened this way. This is what it really happened. Now, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the Bible records that he appeared multiple times. And again, there are details that are included that would suggest this is not a myth. One of the key details is doubting Thomas. We remember doubting Thomas. Remember, he's the one who wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the disciples. And he said, you know what? Unless I put my fingers in his wounds, I'm not going to believe. And that's remarkable because Thomas was one of the apostles. He was there with Jesus. He saw all the miracles, and yet he thought, the resurrection, that's a little bit too much to believe. Jesus does come and appear to Thomas and he says to Thomas, put your fingers in my wounds. Basically what he's saying is put your doubt into me literally. Put your unbelief in me. And Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. You would not make this up. You would not have disciples who are unbelieving and, if you will, unreliable. Why does it read this way? Is because it really happened this way. The Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 15, he says that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared after his resurrection to more than 500 people at one time. He says, you know what? Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Not literally, but a euphemism for they've died. And basically what he's saying is, is if you do not believe in the resurrection, go ask them. They were there. And so the resurrection is verified. It is a historical event. Christianity is founded upon reliable eyewitnesses. The resurrection is credible. It is reasonable. And so today, will you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? Our second point is, will you believe that Jesus is risen to save us from our sins? Look at verse 9 of our text. At first, it says the disciples did not understand his death and resurrection because they did not understand the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? Jesus must rise from the dead to save us from our sins. Now, for that statement to have relevance for us, we really have to first believe that we have sin, and if we do have sin, that we need to be saved from it. 
I put before you, most people actually believe they have sin. Most of us know that we've done something wrong and that uh, we've hurt other people in some way. But many people do not believe that they have what we call a sin problem. In other words, that this is something that I need to be saved from. I often hear statements like this, you know what, I've never murdered anyone. I'm not worse than really bad people. I'm not so bad that I deserve hell. But what do the scriptures say? The scriptures say that just one sin deserves God's anger and punishment. Now, why is that? Because the Bible also teaches that God is holy. When we talk about God being holy, what we're saying is, is God is perfect in all that he is and all that he does. Often when we think about God's holiness, we talk about things like his love and his beauty. And so we like to think about like his perfect love, his perfect beauty, glorious. But when we talk about God being holy, it is those things, but also that means that God is holy in his justice. And what that means then is this. He cannot look the other way at wrongdoing. He must punish even the smallest of sins because that's what holiness is. It's what it demands. Now, when we think about sin, sin is not just then breaking rules. Sin is actually then breaking a relationship with our God. For the heart of sin is then saying, God, I don't really want you. I want to do things my way. It's all about me. And so you can have a person who says, you know what? I think about God, I might call out to him when I'm in need, but this is a person who then says, God's not really what my life is all about. My life is really all about me. And so I live my life apart from God. Now God in his holy and perfect justice, he gives us over to ourselves. Now a person might say, that's not really too bad then, is it? It is bad. For when we are given over to ourselves, this is why in our world today there are so many people who are lonely. For what the heart of their loneliness is this, is this, is that they have alienation, a dissonance. They have a broken relationship with God. And so today, if you talk to psychologists, you read what's in the psychology reports, we have a pandemic of loneliness. It's not just loneliness. What I find also is that when people are apart from God, their life is one of performance. They are those who say, I must try harder. I must follow the rules to show that I am good enough. I must do more. And what we find when people live that way, they might say, okay, at least I'm making myself look better or better than others around me. But it's not restoring a relationship with God. So God gives us over. Now, in an ultimate sense, when God gives us over, when he gives us over for eternity to ourselves, the Bible says that is hell. It's living apart from God forever and ever. Now, on Easter Sunday, you might be saying, that is really severe. And it is. But it's a sobriety and a wake-up to say, it is fair because this is what God is giving, that we have wanted a life apart from him. That is the heart of sin. So now we might say, okay, you got me. I have some sin and perhaps I need to be saved from it. We not just need to be saved from it, we need to be rescued. 
And what this text is saying when it refers to the scriptures, it's saying we need this broken relationship of God restored. And that's what Jesus has come to do. He has come to die and be risen so that we might be restored and be saved from our sin. We talked about in chapter 19, Jesus was pierced in his side and it says blood and water flowed out. After that, it says, this was to fulfill the scripture that they looked upon him whom they have pierced. Now, that scripture that he's referencing is Zechariah chapter 12. So that's a prophet in the Old Testament. And there in that prophecy, it says, there's going to be a divine deliverer, this figure that is holy, that is going to rescue God's people by dying for their sins. Now, who is that divine deliverer? If you raised in the church, what's the Sunday school answer? The Lord Jesus Christ, he is that divine deliverer. Again, because of our sin, we have this broken relationship with God. We are under wrath. We experience separation from God because of our sin, but what does God do? God in love, he sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to stand in our place. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. When Jesus went to the cross, he suffered and died in our place. Jesus is the one who satisfies holy justice. But when Jesus died upon the cross, it also says that he experienced an ultimate separation, an ultimate loneliness. He experienced all the pains of hell on our behalf that was due for our sin. On the cross, he was rejected, even the Father turning away. And we cannot imagine what that was like. For us today, what it means is this. Is the good news good for you? Is the good news like the best news for you? And what is the good news? That Jesus came to die for our sin and give us forgiveness. Then you might ask, well, then why did he have to rise? And that demonstrates that he is truly God. And that what he did by, you know, dying on the cross, that our sins truly are forgiven. If he had not risen, then he would just be another person who died on the cross through the Roman legal system. As Paul says, if Christ is not raised, then our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. Jesus in John chapter 10, he says, I lay down my life for my people so that they might be forgiven. You know, it's remarkable. Jesus could have said those words, but how does he actually prove those words? In other words, he says, hey, I'm going to die for your sins. How does he show it? He's resurrected. The resurrection not only validates all his words, but all his actions. And what is the chief action? In love, he died in our place so that our sins might be forgiven. Today, would you have assurance that you truly belong to God and that the broken relationship that your sin caused, Jesus has fixed. Would you have confidence that you are truly forgiven by God? So that means there's no more performance. You don't have to try and do more in order to get God's favor. Jesus is the one who brings that favor. He has done it all. Will you believe that Jesus is risen to save you from your sin? Our third point. We are to believe that Jesus is risen to give us eternal life. Now, eternal life means living with God forever in heaven, and that's amazing. <laughs> that makes us smile. 
But there's even more. Eternal life in the scripture means enjoying God perfectly even now. You see, we are designed to be with God. Our nature, our constitution, how God made us is so that we would have fellowship with him and enjoy him for always and forever. Now that sounds good. But what went wrong is the curse. Let me ask a question. Why is work sometimes so unsatisfying? You might say because of, it's boring. <laughs> or there's bureaucracy. Uh, sometimes I feel like whatever I do is not really making a difference. And that might be true. But the Bible says what? Your work is cursed. By the sweat of our brow do we work. And it's not just physical toil, but it's emotional toil. Another question. Why are relationships so hard? We might say it's because there's two different people who have two different wills and their wills do not always accord. And so there is conflict over that. I have an opinion, she has an opinion. Now that's true. But there's even more. See, in our heart we want our own way and often in our hearts we murder the other person when we don't get our way. The Bible says our relationships are cursed because of sin. Another question, why do we die? You might say because we're old or, you know, perhaps we get sick or we're in an accident and these things do happen and they're tragic. But why do these things happen? Why are we falling apart? It's because we are under a curse. The curse affects all creation. We see this in the world even today. You cannot help but pick up the paper and there's news of war, injustice, famine, pandemics. It's not just the news, but it's the attitudes and the culture. There's indifference, there's greed, there's shallowness, there's lust, there's pride. And we see that this curse, is, it's in me. It's in you, it's in all of us. And it's not just the loneliness that we talked about, it's not just that being performance driven that we talked about. It's the jealousy, it's the bickering. It's the fighting. And I think one of the ways I see it most, it's the fear that grips us so readily. We see that there is so much wrong in the world. We find that things are out of control and we doubt, will it really be all okay? And so we live in this fear. And that is the fruit of the curse. At creation, the Bible says all was perfect. It's hard for us to imagine that. We just can't. Because we've always lived on the other side of perfection. We've lived in this imperfection, this tarnished world. How did it become imperfect? It's because of sin. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, did not obey the law of love. God says, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love others as yourself. And we have failed to do that. And so sin is in this world. We call this the fall that means we're born with sin. The world is not getting better. We are cursed. Now, someone might say that's a myth. That's just biblical talk. I find that when I find a person who says this is a myth, and then I say, you experience it, though, don't you? In other words, we all die, and the person says yes. And then I say, are you longing for a better world? Or is this world the way that you want it to be? Oh, no, no, no. I want a better world. Then you would agree this world is cursed. It's not a myth. And the scriptures say this, Jesus is risen to overcome the curse. 
That is why he has come. He has overcome the curse and he has come to give us life, both abundant and eternal. In Luke chapter 4, so the Gospel of Luke, in the New Testament, Jesus is beginning his public ministry. And he goes to the synagogue and he says, give me the scroll of Isaiah. So they didn't have bound books like today. And so he turns in the scroll and he goes to the place, it's toward the end of Isaiah, and it's the place where it talks about the year of the Lord's favor. It's like this amazing passage that talks about how there's going to be this Messiah who comes and everything that is wrong in the world, he's going to fix. Everything that is broken and tarnished by the curse, this Messiah is going to undo. He reads that passage and then he does something amazing and he says today in your listening this scripture is fulfilled what Jesus is boldly boldly saying is he is the one who has come to undo the curse and you might say okay that's inspiring of Jesus but the world is still a mess and we can say yes it is but the resurrection gives perspective does it not you see, what Jesus is saying is this world is not final. He is going to come, and come again, and when he comes again, he removes the curse and he brings a new heavens and a new earth. How do we know this? How do we know it's not just church talk? Jesus says so, and we can bank on that, but then Jesus says, I am resurrected. It's guaranteed. As he is resurrected, he is coming again to restore all things. Friends, the resurrection then means... There's incredible hope for us today. What that means is if you are here and you have cancer, it's not the final word. As devastating as cancer is, Jesus says there comes a day when there'll be no more cancer. <laughs> if you are here and you have a disability, perhaps you had a stroke, one side of your body does not work the way it should. Perhaps most of your body doesn't work the way it should. Jesus says, I'm bringing you home and you will dance in heaven. Perhaps you're here and you're saying, I'm full of anxiety. I'm the fearful one. I have so much insecurity. Jesus says there's a day coming when you are going to believe and know how fully loved you are. The resurrection secures this new day. And the resurrection says there's a day when all things perfect will begin and all things will be renewed. Now what we need to see is this resurrection is not just a future hope, but it is the anchor for today. It's what makes sense of our broken world. You see, Jesus comes and he comes as a resurrected Savior. That means he has victory over death, victory over sin, victory over disease, victory over this world, victory over Satan itself. So just give some examples how this works. So the resurrection makes new how you think about your work. Remember we talked about your work, sometimes work is boring, <laughs> bureaucracy, not fulfilling. And what we see here is the resurrection says, yes, you still work by the sweat of your brow, but guess what? Work is no longer your reputation. You don't have to work so hard to make your name because Jesus is your name. He is your identity. He is your life. And so that means you can go to work and yes, you work to make money, but it's now not all about the money. You're no longer enslaved to that. And work can even gasp, be joyful, because work is a place where God is with you, because God is for you, because he is resurrected. And work is a place where you can make his glory known 
Think about relationships. Yes, you're still going to argue. But now because of the resurrection, you have been given grace. Grace to repent. Grace to say, I'm sorry. Grace to actually forgive as Christ has forgiven you. In other words, as Jesus has loved you, now you can love the other person. And so yes, relationships will still be difficult, but because of the resurrection, there's so much hope and beauty. It's not about you, and you can put the other person first. What about aging and disease? Yes, we still grow old. It's going to be aches and pains and disease and suffering. But the resurrection says this life is not all there is. And it puts it into perspective that this does then, my age, my disability does not define me. Christ defines me. And so as I age, I think of the privilege it is to actually make Jesus known to a next generation. And so what a blessing it is for our church to have such a full demographic of literally 20-something young people to an older generation to pass the gospel on. The resurrection gives us perspective. And so many other things that we could talk about. The resurrection changes all things. Think about news. Yes, the news is discouraging, but then the re resurrection reminds us that Jesus is a just judge. He will come and he will judge evil and remove all evil. But then also we think of the news and we think, Jesus, you've come and you've given us your Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit then gives us hope that in this dark, broken world, the gospel goes forward and even the gates of hell do not overcome. See, the resurrection makes a difference of how we live today. Hope, hope for the future, assurance of love, a boldness. And so will you believe that Jesus is risen to give life, life in abundance, but life in eternal? Easter is always very special for me because it's an anniversary. So 35 years ago, uh, last night, I had a spiritual crisis. And so I had been a follower of Jesus for about three, four years, and I was having a crisis. And so I was not at a place where, like, am I really born again? I, I really believe that Jesus died for my sin. I believe that he came for me. I believe that he loved me. I believe that I was truly, actually, you know, if you will, a son of God, that I belonged to him. The crossroads is where I was. I had many choices before me. And I was asking, Jesus, are you truly the center of my life? Is this just something that I'm growing up? Is this something I'm knowing? Or Jesus, is this really my life? Is the resurrection just head knowledge? Or is the resurrection really the center of what my life is about? And so here I am on the eve of Easter. And I'm literally crying before God and I'm saying, Jesus, if you are real, show me. And what he did is through the scriptures, the very thing we're doing right now, he is resurrected. And because Jesus, you are resurrected, this progression started to come through my head. Well, Jesus, if you're resurrected, that must mean you're not a normal person. You are God. And if you're God, that means you are a king. And if you're a king, that means you're in control over all things. And if you're the king, then you care for me because you died for me. And if you died for me, then you must really love me so much. And if you love me, I'm going to follow you all my days. It was that resurrection. At that time, I was studying to be a fish biologist, and I thought, I don't know what it means to be a fish biologist for Jesus. 
Yeah, you can laugh. Good, thank you. <laughs> but I said, I'm going to be a fish biologist for Jesus, and it was great. And that really became the cornerstone, the sure foundation is that resurrection moment on Easter Eve. Today, I do still have doubts and fears, and I need assurance. Friends, I always come back to the resurrection. It's the bedrock. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And because he is risen, everything flows out of that. He is not just a normal man. He is God. And if he is God who has come for me, then there is something amazing about him that he loves me. And if he loves me that much, then I want to follow him. I want to make my life about him because he made his life about me. Today, because Jesus is risen, will you believe in him? Please pray with me. Jesus, we are here to proclaim you are risen indeed. And God, we're asking that this would not just be intellectual, dry knowledge, but that this would be the foundation, the bedrock of our soul, that we can come back to it again and again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That means all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. This means, Jesus, you're not just a normal guy. You are God who became a man to live for me and to die for me, that I might have life and life in abundance and life eternal. Oh, Jesus, you are indeed the Savior. Thank you that you are pierced for our sins. Thank you that you are resurrected to overcome our sins. This Easter, we pray, give us a living and vital faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. who is risen, uh, ever to live for us. We come to the table, which proclaims, we're told by the scriptures, his death. Uh, but it proclaims that his death until he comes again. And so it proclaims the death of the one who has once tasted death, and death will never again have dominion over him. This is a resurrection table we come to this morning in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Who is this? What is this table? It's, a, it's a, a holy meal that Christ prepares for his church, an appointed time where God feeds our faith. It's not a re-sacrifice of Christ. It's not a physical showing forth of his body and blood, but by these elements, Christ is here spiritually to eat with us, to nourish us by his life. The table is for all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, who call him both Lord and... Whoa. <laughs> Got a little bit louder there all of a sudden who call him both Lord and Savior. Uh, it's not for those who are still searching, uh, who are still wondering what it means to follow Christ. If that describes you, you are welcome to come forward, receive a blessing. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to walk with you in that journey. Uh, but let these elements pass you by, for this is a table of faith for those who can say, yes, Christ is both my Lord and my Savior. If he is your Savior, but there's parts of your life where you refuse to call him Lord, where you're walking away from him in, in deliberate defiance of him, then this, it's, a, it's a moment to refrain from the table. The, the scriptures command us to come worthily to this sacrament, to examine ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith. And so this is a time to do that, uh, to even experience a blessing of refraining from the table for a time. 
but it's not for the sinless. <laughs> Otherwise, none of us would come, right? If you call him Lord, if you call him Savior, however imperfectly you walk, you are welcome at this table this morning. Be strengthened by the sacrament. So what I'll do is I'll have a prayer uh, of thanksgiving over the elements, uh, and we'll uh, begin to come to the table together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the feast, that with you there is life and life abundant. There is life forever. We thank you that we participate in this life, your life given for us, and your resurrection life. We thank you that we are joined with you ever to live and to gain access to go where there are pleasures forevermore, the presence of our God. We give you thanks for all this. In Jesus' name, amen. Invite forward the musicians and elders who are serving uh, this morning, and while they're coming up, just a few words of instruction. Uh, since it's Easter, we're doing a couple things a little bit differently, so we're going to have a few more stations around. And as the outer sections come, if you come from the very outside aisles, come in and proceed back down towards the uh, interior side aisles. And then the middle sections here can actually proceed up the main aisle and proceed back down those same interior uh, aisles that way. Uh, we have uh, wine uh, as well as grape juice. The wine is darker, and there are also prepackaged units. Please take the elements, return to your uh, place. We'll have the words of institution, and then we will uh, partake together in common union. Let's come to the table together.
Together.